Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I usually teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah, but not right now. Right now I'm doing a series about how to not waste your time with bad study practices, bad resources, and just the general confusion that I faced when I started studying the Bible and was trying to figure out what to do and whose books I should read. Bottom line, I read a lot of nonsense and spent a ton of money on it. I'm going to give you some basics on how to avoid a lot of the pitfalls, save money, maximize your time and effort, and how to get the most out of what you're doing. And I have a master book list on my website, theancientbridge.com, and I will add to it as needed. And the transcript is there, too. Okay, so I'm about to save you a world of grief. <laughs> Because this week we're going to talk about the difference between apocalyptic literature, like we find in Daniel, Enoch, and Revelation, and historical narratives, like First and Second Samuel, and prophecy, and what that is and isn't. And this one might actually shock you. The overwhelming majority of people who casually teach the Bible, as well as some serious teachers, have no understanding of these types of genre. And we'll end up teaching the different parts of the Bible as though there are no differences and if the audiences would have perceived them as the same kinds of literature. And this can be nothing short of disastrous. Imagine reading The Lord of the Rings or The Chronicles of Narnia in the same way you would read Winston Churchill's autobiography. Or how about reading the poetry of Robert Frost as an Agatha Christie murder mystery or vice versa? Even worse, reading a chicken soup for the soul book the way you would read a science textbook. <laughs> we just wouldn't do it because we understand the different categories of literature, genre, and we know that not all books are meant to be read in the same way. The Bible's like that as well with so many different sorts of literature between the front and the back covers. Parables, allegories, polemic, prophecy, personal letters, encomium, biographies, songs, poetry, wisdom sayings, apocalypses, lamentations, narratives, etc. If we misread any one of those, we're not going to really understand it. And people generally know not to read a poetic psalm like a wisdom saying or the Song of Solomon like the narrative of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. But not everyone knows what to and not to do with parables and polemic texts. The first 11 chapters of Genesis and the 22 chapters of Revelation are especially challenging and not even for the same reasons. But I want to spend the next four weeks or so briefly going over the major genre categories in the Bible and how the original audience would have read them. I want to first start out by talking about prophecy and what it does and doesn't mean because we generally don't use it correctly. Prophecy in scripture is overwhelmingly devoted to encouragement and rebuke. The prophets are speaking the words of God to the people, and although there is often a, if you do not clean up your act, then there will be trouble, and I will allow foreign powers to do what they want to you instead of protecting you like I normally do, there's very little of a predictive sort of thing going on. Yes, every once in a while you get the sort of, you will be in Babylon for 70 years, or there will be a king named Josiah, or the name of the branch will be Yehoshua, 
or I will send a deliverer named Cyrus, sort of proclamation. But most of what we find coming out of the mouths of the prophets are dire warnings to get their act together. Stop worshiping idols, stop oppressing their neighbors, and generally stop making Yahweh look bad or like the gods of the other nations. On the flip side of that is the encouragement and promise that if they do, all will be forgiven. There's always encouragement with prophecy, or at least almost always, I think almost always. Prophecy was composed of a lot of if-then statements that were in no way written in stone. And when we get to the actual predictive sort of prophetic utterance, the meaning is a lot easier to understand in retrospect than it was in advance. This is why we have so many different opinions expressed within the Dead Sea Scrolls and later Talmudic writings about what form the Messiah would take. A warlike David Messiah? A priestly Aaronic Messiah? Or a suffering Joseph sort of Messiah? They could see a Messiah clearly in Scripture. But what kind was anything but clear, and... Really, the different predictive utterances seem to point to a number of different messiahs and not just one. Of course, we read those and say, oh, duh, that's totally Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus. But none of the Bible experts could see it at the time. We need to remember this with humility and graciousness when we're trying to figure out prophecy. I don't even try, actually. (laughs) And to remember that the last 4,000 years has been a comedy of errors in trying to second-guess God, beginning with how Abraham and Sarah decided to help Yahweh make an heir happen, to current predictions of the second coming and who the ten horns and Antichrist are this time, since last year's batch didn't pan out. Prophets were there to give God's people their report cards, and God rarely had anything to say when they were doing a good job of being his people. God isn't a micromanager. He isn't sending out prophets to say, hey, you guys are awesome. Instead, it's, you are that man, to kings who have slipped into sins like murder and sexual assault. Really, there isn't much need of telling people the future when they're screwing up today. We want to know the future because then we don't really have to trust God and do our jobs, as Yeshua commanded his disciples to do in Mark 13, when he told them to ignore all the wars and rumors of wars and to just be about the work of the kingdom until the end. You see, we don't need to know the future to know that God wins, that there will be terrible times of persecution, that the world needs to know him, and that Yeshua will be returning as king of the world. The parables repeatedly tell us that the wise person will be about their master's business and not standing out in the road watching the horizon. Let's talk really quick about narratives and historical narratives. A narrative, in general, is a story and it can be true or false. If we read something that begins with once upon a time, then we know we're reading a narrative. And we will hear the story of someone or something. Usually those four words signal to us that a fairy tale is coming, right? Well... What about these words from Genesis eleven twenty seven through 31? Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. 
The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah. But Sarai was barren, she had no child. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came into Haran and dwelt there. So this sounds entirely different from once upon a time, or even the vague in the beginning. That's because the storytelling mode changes at the end of Genesis 11 from a polemic narrative where for 11 chapters God is being compared and contrasted with the Babylonian gods, and they don't come out looking so great, to a historical narrative which will begin to intersect more and more with other recorded histories as we dive deeper into the story. Abraham's story is very different from the accounts of Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, Noah, and Nimrod. The way he interacts with God and with others and with his environment and the culture of the ancient Near East is not what we have seen with other stories up to this point. Abraham feels real in a way that no one before him has, because the narrative has shifted from stories told to explain why certain realities of life were the way they were to the story of the creation of Israel and the Jewish people. This is another Genesis story, another beginning, because the whole world is about to experience a reverse of the curses of Adam. Adam was exiled, and Abraham is given a homeland. Adam's experience with the land was cursed, whereas Abraham is promised a land flowing with milk and honey. Adam's sin brought misery, and Abraham's obedience brought blessings to all the families of the earth. Adam's seed was a murderer, shedding innocent blood, and Abraham's seed is the Messiah, shedding his own blood for the guilty. And we don't read Genesis 12 through the Chronicles of the King in the same way that we read the prophets. Even though the prophets do have short narrative stories, as in Isaiah, or longer ones, as in Jeremiah. When we read the narrative stories, we are reading ancient Near Eastern history, which is entirely different from how we would read modern history. Ancient history is all about how God or the gods interacted with humanity. There was no separation between religious life and history. History was about God first and foremost and about people second. And their histories were more geared towards speaking truths than about being accurate. Numbers were about communicating concepts and not about accuracy. Forty didn't always mean forty, and thousand didn't always mean thousand. Believe me, it made perfect sense to them, even when it frustrates the heck out of us. The historical narratives gave their perception of how the gods were interacting with them in the big events of their lives. They saw nothing apart from that interaction. If they won a battle, then it was God's favor. If they lost it, it was because God was angry. Planning and strategy, if they work, were inspired. I will say before moving on to the apocalyptic genre, that in the narratives you will see other things like the songs of Moses and Miriam, covenant codes, parables and allegories, and that sort of thing. 
There's a lot of crossover depending on what's being communicated and why. We just have to be on the lookout for when the type of writing changes so that we handle everything properly. Or else we will make doctrines of heaven and hell out of the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, which a lot of people do. But parables weren't meant to be used that way. And we'll talk about that some other week. On the subject of apocalyptic literature, such as we find in Daniel, Enoch, and Revelation, it's very important that we divide it rightly and not treat it like a narrative or a predictive utterance. Although we do find a lot of prophecy in there in terms of encouragement and rebuke, if we mistakenly treat Revelation, for example, as a narrative, we will come up with timelines of the future that we are expecting to come to pass. But that wasn't how this type of literature was supposed to work or how it was read by the original Jewish audience. And allow me to say right off that I do not consider Enoch scripture any more than I consider the Left Behind series of books to be scripture. In. And in a way, they're very similar, Left Behind and Enoch, because they contain various takes on what the people were expecting in the eschaton, which is a fancy way of talking about the events surrounding the end of the world, as well as what was going on behind the veil, quote-unquote veil, that separates our world from the heavenly realms, is how they saw it. Enoch is a collection of fictional accounts written by various authors over the course of a few hundred years in Greek. I mean... They weren't any different than us. They, they wondered and wrote their thoughts down, and they were so wildly popular that they became part of the cultural lingo. And as Paul quoted well-known pagan philosophers, these popular apocalypses were also quoted, and for the exact same reason. It's not much different than when I got put in Facebook jail last week for using the old joke, if I told you I would have to kill you. When I couldn't answer a question someone asked me. Of course, that actually made it even funnier. That phrase is part of our cultural waters. A commonly held joke that needs no explanation, unless you work for Facebook. Daniel and Revelation, of course, are not the same as Enoch, and they are rightly part of the biblical canon. And I want to take a few minutes to explain exactly what an apocalypse is why it was written the way it was, what purpose it served, and what to look for as far as identifying apocalyptic literature as opposed to narratives or more typical prophetic writing. And I'm going to have a link to, I did a more involved teaching about apocalypses, and so I'm going to have that link in the transcript. An apocalypse was written in order to rip back the veil that separates the heavenly realm from our own for the purpose of showing people living under an oppressive regime what the battle of good versus evil looks like from the point of view of Yahweh and his heavenly hosts. This is why we don't see this sort of literature pop up historically or in the canon until the time of the Babylonian exile. Unlike other kinds of biblical literature, an apocalypse is written in the first person, which is something we don't see earlier in history. In an apocalypse, which is a revelation of the realities of cosmic warfare, the author is given some sort of guided tour of the heavenly realms 
and shown things meant to encourage and warn God's people of where they are doing what is right in resisting empire slash the beast kingdoms or doing wrong in collaborating with them. With Daniel, the empires in question during the apocalyptic portions are Babylon, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and presumably the Romans. Those enduring exile both inside and outside the Holy Land, which at this point was merely a province of one or other larger empires, these people were faced with the daily reality of pagan gods, oppression, bloodshed, and military strength. Those living in places like Babylon and Susa were also firsthand witnesses and recipients of the wealth and comforts of living in an established and prosperous empire. We see a similar situation in Revelation. Only the empire is Rome in league with the temple hierarchy. But the oppression of those within the Holy Land and the wealth and comforts of those places like Laodicea and Rome are very much the same. Throughout Daniel and the first chapters of Revelation, severe warnings are given to those who are collaborating with empire. And those who resist are praised and encouraged. Daniel approaches this a bit differently by way of telling stories of those who are rewarded for faithfulness and those who are punished for treachery. In Revelation, there are letters to the seven churches describing the good and the bad in a series of real church situations. But both of these serve the same function of telling the people who are either oppressed by or compromised by empire that in the end God will win and people will be rewarded according to their works and specifically with respect to whom they allied themselves, the beast kingdoms or the kingdom of heaven. The whole point of the peak behind the cosmic veil is to show them that no matter how things look on this side, the reality on the other side is that empire is doomed, overwhelmed, and fighting a hopeless battle. Enemy combatants are shown to simply be pawns of Satan and his angels. Their kingdoms are shown as nothing more than vicious beasts tearing one another apart. One rises up only to be devoured by the next, and it repeats throughout history. Only one kingdom stands firm and undiminished, while every other terrifying world empire falls into shame and even obscurity with some forgotten altogether. And the symbolism, far from being obscure or unknown to the author, is very well understood, not only to the author, but to the audience. I believe it was David De Silva, and I'm going to link his excellent video, who remarked that even a moderately intelligent Roman bureaucrat could have read Revelation and known exactly what they were really saying and about whom. An apocalypse was subversive literature at its finest. Sticking it to the man in such a way that even if the enemy understood that they wouldn't dare admit it for fear of looking like fools. Sort of like the parable of the tenants in the vineyard. The chief priest knew darn well it was about them and condemning them in the worst possible terms. But if they objected, then everyone would know it and they would end up looking like fools. Actually, I've had similar things happen to me before and when I'm smart, I just ignore it. 
Calling attention to it would just be owning it as credible. It's like, hey, that's about me. Oh, really? Why is it about you? Why do you know it's about you? What have you been doing? In an apocalypse, we are treated to a series of heavenly scenes full of angels and demons and powers and principalities. Although terrifying, it's actually meant to inspire both awe and confidence in the plans of Yahweh to defeat the forces of evil that plague mankind. Everything is seen for what it truly is. Judgment is inevitable and often simply waiting for something like the iniquity of the Amorites to be complete, which we find in like Genesis 15, I believe. Yahweh warns, calls to repentance, and chastens even the worst of humanity before collapsing kingdoms and allowing them to fall prey to the next in line. In this, his mercy is shown to the world. Those who fall are not shown to have wasted their lives, but as pillars of the here and not yet kingdom. There are mysteries too great for us to see or read, but in the end, Yahweh wins through the meekness of a little lamb who has all the empires of the world running scared. Not sure if you've ever noticed that, but despite the Lion of Judah being called for in Revelation, a small wounded lamb shows up and strikes terror into the hearts of his enemies who, you know, are hiding. And it's really hilarious when you read it in that light. And it was meant to be. It was mocking the kings of the great empires. And apocalypses, despite being purposefully terrifying to those who live in comfort and ease as oppressors, they're really very funny when read by the persecuted, funny and encouraging. Everything we see in the earthly realm gets turned upside down, and what we see as reality gets exposed as an illusion. And more than anything is the hope for the end of all things evil. When New Jerusalem descends, and what was once a garden paradise becomes a city garden paradise, where all that was once good is restored and curses are no more. When Jew and Gentile of every tongue, color, nationality, ethnic group, gender, and whatever worship together shoulder to shoulder in true unity and equality, where every tear is wiped away and we see Yeshua as he is, King of kings and Lord of lords. But if we read it as a prophetic roadmap of the future, as a narrative instead of an apocalypse, we miss it. And what was meant to inspire hope and confidence becomes an obsession and a terror. But we aren't supposed to fear the contents of an apocalypse as long as we are found to be among the faithful who do not ally themselves with nationalism, empire, and oppression. If we are scared reading it, then we are reading it as transgressors. An apocalypse is a reality check for those who are already suffering and a chastening rod for those who are causing suffering through robbery, violence, deceit, slavery, murder, and all sorts of immorality. An apocalypse reminds us that there will someday be justice and that we all make the decision in the here and now whether to ally ourselves with Yahweh and his Messiah and the upside-down ways of his kingdom 
or with the beast by taking his mark through allying ourselves with the oppressors. And that can happen in any generation because it's not a literal mark. It's who you ally yourself with. That's what we see back in Ezekiel. And we have to look very deep and stop guarding our egos. Christian slave masters undoubtedly believed that they were allied with the kingdom, but they were violent oppressors living in ease while others paid the price. We have to make sure we aren't following suit in different and more palatable ways. That's enough on those three types of biblical literature. I think that next time I'm going to talk about wisdom literature, poetry, parables, allegories, and how they are beneficial for us when used correctly and damaging when we don't.